So you have a friend. He's a dummy, but he's smarter than you. He's wooden, but he has more personality than you. He says awful things, but he's way more liked than you. He's not real, or is he? Sounds like it's time for episode 88 of Pop Art, where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your just room for one inside, sir, host, Howard Casper. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, podcaster, film enthusiast, and the host of the Lambcast podcast, Richard Kirkham, who has chosen as his film, the Anthony Hopkins star, Magic. Well, I have chosen the portmanteau horror film, Dead of Night, with magic revolving around a ventriloquist with mental issues, and Dead of Night, an anthology film whose most famous episode revolves around a ventriloquist with mental issues. Mm. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my visitors to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Richard, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? I'm happy to, Howard. Thank you. I've been blogging since 2010. My original project at my website, Kirkham A Movie A Day, consisted of reviews and commentary, short essays on films that I saw in the summers of the 1970s when I was uh, growing up in high school and in college. I literally did a movie a day for the summer, but when I moved off of that project, I switched it to a, a more traditional blogging site where I review new films. I occasionally have special projects. My theme is that if I see it in a theater, I write about it. And I started co-hosting the Lambcast in 2018, and I became the primary host in 2020. Also in 2020, I relocated from Southern California, where I'd lived for my whole life, to Texas. I'm still blogging and still podcasting, but doing so in the Lone Star State. Well, that's great. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is Magic. First, some information about this film. Magic is a psychological horror film released in 1978. It was directed by Richard Attenborough and written by William Goldman, based on his novel of the same name. It stars Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, Burgess Meredith, Ed Lauter, E.J. Andre, Jerry Hauser, David Ogden Stiers, and Lillian Randolph. A magician who doesn't have the personality to do stage work discovers that if he adds ventriloquism to his act, he is on the road to success. But his insecurity starts manifesting itself in his dummy, which seems to take on a life of its own. Before beginning, I thought we might talk about 70s films, which is the decade your choice came from. I think I could be wrong that this is your favorite decade of movie making, and it is often considered one of the most important, if not most important, periods for filmmaking, at least in America. Why do you think you gravitate towards 70s films so much? Well, of course, it's my formative years, so that's a big part of it. I think a lot of us are that way. We remember fondly the films that we grew up in. But I also like films that are gritty, that they are story-driven. Effects films are fine, and I enjoy a lot of special effects movies. But I tell you what, my favorite thing about Jaws is not the mechanical shark. There are good stories that are well-told, and they take the time to tell them, which is not usually the way things happen nowadays. Everything feels a lot quicker. The actors are different, too. They come from a different era, and their acting styles sometimes are a little bit different. As you said, it was considered the second golden age of Hollywood between 19, let's say, 68 and 1978. There's a decade in there where there were some fantastic films made. It's also the start of the blockbuster era, so you can kind of see the crossover point between Jaws and Star Wars, where the blockbuster mentality took over from what were more filmmaker-driven films in 
the earlier part of the decade. Well, I also grew up with 70s films. I was in my 20s. I do have a slightly different memory than many people do who grew up on them. So many say this is the period of the gold standard of movies, and they name all these great movies made during this period. And there were. There were a lot of wonderful movies made during this time. But what I remember, and probably my personality, is how many terrible films were made during this period. People that I talked to, especially younger than me, all remember the good ones, because that was the time when I was really going to movies, seeing everything. There were some pretty bad films. In my original project, out of the 90-plus films that I did that summer, I would say a good 10 to 15% of them were dogs. But that didn't mean that I didn't recall them fondly. It was just uh, appreciating them in a different way, certainly, many years later. Well, I do acknowledge that this was the period of the American New Wave, which was highly influenced by the French New Wave and existentialism, along with Italian neorealism, with some postmodernism thrown in. And it was the first generation of filmmakers that were raised on movies. Films seemed to go in two directions. There is the more postmodernism of Spielberg and Lucas, and the more New Wave existentialism of Scorsese and Schrader and Robert Town, Coppola and Kubrick sort of straddling both sides. But ironically, though, this was the height of the American New Wave. It was also the death of independent studio filmmaking with the opening of Jaws. Yes. And I'd like to say that it changed it for the better, but I know that in some ways it isn't a change for the better because a lot of filmmakers maybe probably lost opportunities that would have been open to them before. And the studios were more interested then in mass successes rather than smaller successes. But in 1978, you were still getting adult-driven films that asked those existential questions about why am I here? What is my life? Who am I? And believe me, Corky doesn't know who he is. (laughs) Why did you choose this film? I had read the novel Magic by William Goldman. I've been a huge fan of William Goldman as a screenwriter. Some of his films are my best loved movies. It's also about ventriloquism. As a kid, when I was 12, 13 years old, I had a ventriloquism act. Yeah, I had a Jerry Mahoney doll that was articulated pretty well. His eyes moved and his mouth moved. I didn't have eyebrows and ear movement on it. I had him in a Cub Scout uniform. I put on my Boy Scout uniform and we had a routine that we did at Christmas time. And I did a couple of Christmas shows at school. I did the performance, I think, on stage at church one time. My father was a professional magician, so I was always interested in magic, although it was not a career that I was interested in at that point. Once I got to high school, I I was really interested in other things. And of course, we were looking for a theme in picking films for pop art, and we were looking for things that came out in November, and this came out in November of 1978. When did you first see it? In November of 1978. I went with my girlfriend, who later became my wife. I think it was a pretty chilly evening. We saw it up in Pasadena. That's my memory, at least, at the uh, Hastings Ranch Theater, which was a man theater. It was a triplex. What did you think upon first thing? I enjoyed it pretty much. I thought it followed the novel pretty well. I don't think it's as cinematic as it needs to be. There were a couple of issues with the acting that I had, but I remember liking the story, liking the way it was presented on screen, having two or three good scares in the movie. It is a horror film. I think I recommended it to other people, but I wouldn't have put it on my list of the best films of that year. When I was a kid, Ventriloquist Dummies scared the hell out of me. I mean, when I was a little kid. is a little kids seeing the Twilight Zone episode with Cliff Robertson freaking out about that. And this movie evokes the same sort of feeling. There's something just not right about a talking doll. (laughs) 
then we'll see that in Dead of Night as well. Yes, yes. I also saw it when it first opened. I enjoyed it well enough. I especially like Nate Hopkins. There's some strong scenes. I do feel it is much of its time. I feel like it's very much 1970s film and feeling and tone. It's interesting because there are some references to contemporary celebrities at the time. They mentioned getting on the Mike Douglas show with or Tom Snyder or Johnny Carson. The character of Burgess Meredith talks about how they're going to do the same sort of thing that they did with Steve Martin at the time. And Steve Martin was like the big thing in that era. He was also a magician at one point. And he went from being an entertainer in small clubs with some background in television to being the hot comedian in the world with uh, albums and movies and all those sorts of things. I do see those references and think that dates it a little bit. But the talking doll thing, I don't think ever gets old. (laughs) I don't think it really rises much above being a solid enough psychological thriller. What I did forget about it was how small a film it is. Once Hopkins goes to the Catskills, it all takes place in that one location. And there are only four characters that appear in that location for the most part. Now, this is Catskills, which was big in the first half of the 20th century. It's the place where Jewish people went to on vacation because so many other resorts were restricted, so they just built their own resorts. All those fans of Dirty Dancing pay close attention. Right. But Catskills just died, and you see it here. What are some of your favorite scenes? There are two things that I liked quite a bit. One, because of the tension in it, and one because of the creepy factor. The creep factor consists of the love scene between Corky and Peggy Ann Snow, Anthony Hopkins and Ann Margaret, which is an intimate scene. It's sweet. There's some nudity. But while it's happening, the director cuts frequently to a still shot of Fats, the dummy, sitting in the other room with the open door to the bedroom in the background. And I just thought every time they did that, it was creepy thinking about the doll being in the other room, listening into this couple making love. I thought that was kind of disturbing. Well, it does kind of fool you because it's just a doll. Right. It's not alive. It shouldn't really have any emotional effect on you. But at the same time, you're going, oh, my God, he's doing this where the doll can hear it. And I'm going, but the doll can't hear it. The doll can't hear it. No, no. But the best scene in the movie, and it's my favorite scene, is the five-minute challenge that Burgess Meredith gives to Corky. He plays the part of Corky's agent. He's figured out that Corky has problems, big problems, with his personality and the relationship with Fats, his mannequin. He tells him, I'll accept that you are in charge and in control and you're okay if you can make Fats shut up for five minutes. And Anthony Hopkins struggles to not let Fats take over his personality. And of course, with his psychological issues, it's near impossible. That is also one of my favorite scenes. I almost would like to go back and take out a stopwatch. I did keep wondering, is this really 30 seconds or is this a movie 30 seconds? <laughs> but I also like the three club scenes where Corky is doing a magic trick for Piggy Sue and trying to make her think that they are in sync because they chose the same card. And then later on, you find out how he did it, which is a bit devastating. You did mention the director, Richard Attenborough. Are you a fan of his? I like him as an actor, and I've seen some of the movies that he's directed, and they're perfectly fine, but I never thought that there was anything special about his direction. He would not have been a person that I would say brought me into a movie because he was the director of the movie. He was coincidentally the director of a movie that I would see. Well, I agree with you. I am not a fan of Richard Attenborough. In fact, he sometimes makes me a little angry because I think he's very 
bland and boring. He's a much better actor than a director. He really first got noticed in the film adaptation of Graham Greene's Bright and Rock and then did such films as I'm All Right, Jack, and The Great Escape, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, and I'm sure most of the listeners will know him from what movie? Jurassic Park. There you go, Jay. (laughs) His first film, I think, is probably his most interesting one as the director. Oh, what a lovely war musical setter of World War I. It doesn't work as a movie. Not his fault, totally. But it's probably his most interesting It's been a long time since I saw it, but I remember really liking Shadowlands as a movie, but I couldn't say that it was because of his direction, because it may have been just because of the actors involved, because that was both Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger, I think. Right, and it's based on this true story. Right. The one thing that I think shows Attenborough's limitations is when Corky tries to drown his agent, Ben Green. Because I was watching it, I was thinking of Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock. When Norman Bates has pushed the car into the lake, car sinks and then it stops. Stops sinking, right? And how do you react? You're on the edge of your seat hoping, praying the car sinks, which it does. You're on Norman's side. That's what Hitchcock would do. Make you get on the side of these awful people and then you feel kind of ashamed. But I never had that feeling here. So I didn't really have that much of an emotional reaction. Well, I think it's easy to say Richard Attenborough was no Hitchcock. (laughs) Right. Another example I used. Have you ever watched the opening of A Chorus Line? It's been forever since I saw it. And then you watch Bob Fosse's opening to all that jazz, and you just see where Attenborough's limitation is. The film feels fairly pedestrian to me. There are some moments of tension. There are some creepy moments. But it's not an overwhelmingly scary horror film. The psychological element of it is on a very surface level. The best performance in the movie doesn't come from the lead. It comes from a different actor, you know, and I think that's Burgess Meredith. He was the first choice. It went through Norman Jewison and then Spielberg even thought about doing it. And Richard Attenborough agreed to do this film so he could get financing for his dream project, Gandhi. He can't win them all. He got stuck with Gandhi. Well, it's been a long time since I've seen Gandhi. I do remember seeing it and being impressed by it, mostly because of its scale and the performance of Ben Kingsley. It's not the film that I visit the most from 1982. That would be E.T. or Blade Runner. The screenplay was by William Goldman. Well, you said you read the book, so it's yes. like you'd be a fan. I'm a huge fan of William Goldman. Look, he wrote some of the best films ever. I love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men. How they turned that into a story that you could follow is incredible. And of course, The Princess Bride is the gold standard by which most films should be judged. He also wrote the screenplay for Misery. It wasn't his original story. That's a Stephen King story, but he did a great job with the screenplay adapting it. We adapted his own other novel, A Marathon Man, to a screenplay that I thought was also very effective. And I've read a couple of the books that he wrote. They were nonfiction, Adventures in the Screed Trade. I'm not quite the fan other people are. I think All the President's Men is his best screenplay. And it's a really fine movie. Certainly one of the best in 1976. And I'm not that big a fan of Butch Cassidy. I need to see The Princess Bride again because it did not work for me. Everybody loves it. Everybody thinks if someone doesn't like this, there is something seriously wrong with them. And I'll admit there might be something. There might be something seriously wrong with you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to say no to that. So I need to see it again. Because actually, it's the kind of movie that I should like. He started out really strong. You know, he had Butch Cassidy, he had All the President's Men. 
And after a series of successes, he went through a period where nobody would fire him. And this was because for different reasons, which didn't seem to be anybody's particular fault, several of his films just didn't end up getting filmed. So he became less and less in demand. And during that time, he published that memoir that you talked about, Adventures yeah. in the Steam Trade, where we now have one of the most quoted epigrams about Tinseltown. <laughs> Nobody knows anything. Right. Then he made the comeback with The Princess Bride and Misery. I have not read Adventures in the Screen Trade, but I do have this anecdote or this part from it where he says that he began to write when he took a creative writing course in college. And he said that his grades in the class were quote unquote horrible. He was an editor of Oberlin's Literary Magazine. He submitted his short stories to the magazine anonymously. He recalls that the other editors read his submissions and remarked, we can't possibly publish this shit. <laughs> That's really devastating. So now we get to the acting, and you've stated who you think is the best performance, and tell us more about that. Obviously, Burgess Meredith was... In his golden age, he'd been around forever. He had several accolades. He was nominated for the Academy Award a couple times in the 1970s. He was a go-to, irascible character actor. In this part, he's not playing Mickey from Rocky. He's got that same voice, but he comes across exactly like the Swifty Lazar sort of character he's supposed to be. I know that they originally had planned on having Laurence Olivier playing the part, but to me, it, it would be strange. Burgess Meredith feels more... More American, more ethnic, more New York than I can imagine Laurence Olivier being. So he works a little bit better for me. But when he pulls out those cigars that are twice as big as his head and he starts smoking them, I just think that that's a nice affectation for the character to have. He is very sympathetic and supportive of Corky. And he's frankly murdered in a very odd way. I mean, obviously we have the drowning too, but the original first step in the murder process involves him being clubbed to death by our other main character, Fats. He lays on the ground whimpering and he turns and he's frightened. And it, it, I thought it was a good scene without being too gruesome. Yes, he does give a, a very sympathetic and empathetic performance of an agent who is always looking at the bottom line, but also does have an emotional interest in his clients. And he does come from the Golden Age of Hollywood, started in the 1940s. Oh, yeah. And I remember him from uh, uh, Mice and Men. To show just how big his career was, do you remember when the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game came out? Oh, yeah. Someone noted that if you use Burgess Meredith instead, you would only need five <laughs> piece of trivia for your listeners. I did read once that the person that had the fewest degrees of separation between themselves and all the other actors was Dennis Hopper. Well, yeah, I mean, once you get him in movies like Giant yeah. and Rebel Without a Cause. Burgess Meredith had a very long career. People my generation, of course, are always going to remember him as the Penguin from the Batman TV series. He was blacklisted for a while, and he went to doing TV and radio. But most of the positive critical attention focused on Hopkins' performance, and I think he's very good in spite of a wonky accent. So the screenplay is, does a very clever thing here by giving Corky the line where he says his father was British. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cheat on it a little bit. Hopkins is actually the main reservation I have about the film. He's good in a lot of the scenes, but he often feels over the top. He's a quiet actor. I think he's really effective when he's more internalized. I remember him from Howard's End, The Silence of the Lambs. He's really an actor who 
doesn't need to shout and scream and yell. There's a lot of shouting and screaming and yelling in this movie, and it doesn't really fit him or his character very much, especially you know when he's trying to woo Peggy Ann Snow. Well, he does have this anger management problem. Right. No one really addresses, even when Burgess Meredith wants him to see the doctor, it's not about his anger management issues. It's whether he's crazy or not. That even if he didn't have these mental issues because of his dummy, he still has this anger management issue. Yeah, he snaps it gangrene. It often seems like it's capricious in his doing so. My memory of this time is that Anthony Hopkins was appreciated by the critics. He just couldn't make it to the top of the acting game. Yeah, he needed a little bit more time. I was since 1968. Yeah, the Lion in Winter, and he was constantly working. A Uh, couple of years ago on the Lambcast, we did a What You've Been Watching show or an Off the Beaten Path show. I can't remember which one it was, where we had talked about films that we had seen recently or something that maybe people might want to look up. There was a film that he was in that I thought was really strange. It's a James Bond ripoff. Anthony Hopkins is playing the James Bond-type character when Eight Bells Toll. I remember on the Roger Niebuhr show, they had one where they were talking about underappreciated actors, and Hopkins was one of them. A lot of critics thought that magic was going to be the film that propelled him forward, but it didn't. His career just was stalled. Even Hopkins seemed to think it was because he left Hollywood. He said that he came to the conclusion he was never going to be an A-list actor. So he returned to the London stage and starred in In Butterfly. And he said, quote, well, that part of my life's over. It's a chapter closed. I suppose I'll just have to settle for being a respectable actor poncing around the West End and doing respectable BBC work for the rest of my life. And he didn't really like doing stage work for us. He was doing the same play and the same character night after night after night. What Magic did was perhaps help him get the part of Silence of the Lamb. I could see that that might very well have had an influence, people looking back and saying, who can give us intensity? Yes, and then it's Silence of the Lamb, too, is very quiet. And he's in it for a very short period of time. Everybody thinks he's in it for the whole film. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It's not more than 20 minutes. Yeah, it's one of the shortest parts that everyone that's actor. Let me mention the other two main actors in the second part of the story. I think Anne Margaret is really solid. She doesn't play it glamorous. She's a beautiful woman, but she's not done up to be a beautiful woman in this particular thing. This is really a woman who is maturing in this small part of the world. I don't want to say she's withering on the vine, but she's certainly not glowing. Ed Lauder is one of my favorite character actors from the 70s. I love him in all kinds of things. He's sort of the heavy in this. At one point, he smacks Anne Margaret, and so he's domestic abuse and that sort of thing. But he's kind of a sad case because he feels out of sorts and out of control of what's going on. Even at one point, when he feels negatively toward Corky, he kind of becomes a confessor to him, asking for advice and support, and you feel sympathy for him. Yeah, you're right. When he's in that boat with Corky and suddenly he says, I'm losing her and I don't know what to do. Right. Suddenly he's the most sympathetic person in the whole movie. Exactly. It is problematic, but he is. And also there's David Ogden Stiers. Yes. At the beginning of the film is the NBC executive with his nice toupee. (laughs) Yes. We later know from MASH. But then there's the music. Say about Jerry Goldsmith. I'm going to say it up front because uh, it's not a secret here. Jerry Goldsmith is my favorite film composer. 
I love John Williams. I think his work is spectacular. But Jerry Goldsmith is the first composer that I knew by name. First one that I noticed his music on a regular basis. I thought the score here was very good. There's a nice kind of love theme at one point that works effectively. But I'm a fan of Jerry Goldsmith, so you better not say anything negative here. <laughs> no, it's not my favorite. It's Bernard Herrmann and John Williams. But he is one of the giants of film scoring. Do you have a favorite score? Yes, The Wind and the Lion. I think you can find the suite available on YouTube. I think it's a great rousing score that mixes instruments from, even if they aren't real instruments from the Middle East, they sound like they could be instruments from the Middle East. He was known for that. He would use the vast array of ethnic instruments. Oh, yeah. Recorded sound, synthetic texture. Planet of the Apes is a spectacular electronic score. With I think we're without the mouthpieces. Like many film composers. He would do big epic scores and quiet scores and some of my favorites. I thought Star Trek. I don't know how he managed to pull that out of his hat. There already was a score for Star Trek. And right. Then- well, he essentially created a new theme for Star right. Trek that got used on the subsequent television show as the main theme of the show. There's a reason for it. It's a spectacular theme. It is. Who's yours? With those bouncing basketballs, the Omen and Chinatown. He was a last-minute right. addition to Chinatown. It's a great score. You know, the, very, very subtle. And all the ones that he was nominated for, he wins for the Omen. Right, uh, which is maybe his most bellicose score. <laughs> for me, he's a screen composer where I would buy records of his if I hadn't seen the movie because the scores were worth listening to no matter what piece of crap the movie was. Yes, in a 2001 interview, film composer Marco Beltrami, who did 310 to Yuma and The Heart Walker, stated, Without Jerry, film music would probably be in a different place than it is now. I think he, more than any other composer, bridged the gap between the old Hollywood scoring style and the modern film composer. That sounds accurate to me. Well, with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $7 million to make and made $23.8 million at the box office. Anthony Hopkins received a BAFTA and Golden Globe nomination. Gene Wilder was the original choice for Corky, and director Richard Attenborough and writer William Goldman wanted him, but producer Joseph E. Levine didn't because he didn't want a real comedian to play the role. Gene Wilder was later asked what role he wished he'd gotten to play, and he said Corky. He said the film would have worked much better with a comedian in the role. Richard Attenborough had two younger brothers, naturalist and broadcaster David Attenborough, and motor trade executive John Attenborough. In 1952, he appeared on the West End stage, originating the role of Detective Sergeant Trotter in Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, which has since become the world's longest-running play. He's played by Harris Dickerson in the recent mystery film See How They Run, which revolves around the play The Mousetrap. In closing credits, Anthony Hopkins is billed twice, first and fifth, for the characters of Corky and Fats, respectively. People might know the black actor Lillian Randolph, who played Sadie from It's a Wonderful Life and The Onion Field, as well as being the voice of the character Mammy Two-Shoes in 22 Tom and Jerry cartoons. There is one moment in the movie where Fats' eyes seem to move without any help from Corky. So people think this is a clue that Fats was actually possessed. But Dennis Alwood, the ventriloquist and the puppeteer for Fats, said this was just a mistake and Attenborough left it in, hoping no one would notice. Of course, this wasn't at the time with DVDs and streaming where you can slow down and look at everything. It got mixed reviews at the time. Gene Siskel of the Tribune gave it a four-star review. He said, the film scared me because I admired Hopkins' performance as much as any in this year. 
And because it would have been so easy for a film such as this to fail, he made it number nine on this list of the 10 best films of 1978. Roger Ebert admired Hopkins and Burgess Meredith's performances and Attenborough's direction, I don't know why, but expressed disappointment at the final act, saying, I don't think the screenplay does justice to the talent of the people who get into the picture. And for those who didn't like it, I think Vincent Canby, the New York Times, said what most of them thought. Magic is neither eerie nor effective. It is, however, very heavy of hand. And in relation to our next film, Dead of Night, Leonard Malton said, wait for a rerun of Dead of Night. While according to rating the movies, said this movie was reminiscent of the classic 1945 British chiller, Dead of Night, while Phil Hardy's Encyclopedia of Horror Movies stated that the movie was an expansion of Alberto Cavalcanti's contribution to Dead of Night. That, let's get to my selection, and that is Dead of Night. First, some information about the film. Dead of Night is a British anthology horror film released in 1945. Since this is an anthology film, I will reveal the directors and authors along with the cast. So, are you sitting down? <laughs> Take a deep breath, everybody. Yes. For the overarching story at the farmhouse, it was directed by Basil Dearden. The story was by E.F. Benson. It's Anthony Baird, Roland Culver, Renee Gadd, Sally Ann Howes, Mervyn Johns, Judy Kelly, Barbara Leake, Mary Merrill, Frederick Falk, Googie Withers. The Hearst Driver is directed by Basil Dearden, based on The Bus Conductor by E.F. Benson. It stars Anthony Baird, Judy Kelly, Miles Mallison, and Robert Wyndham. The Christmas Party is directed by Alberto Cavalcanti, with a story by Angus McPhail. It stars Michael Allen, Sally Ann Howes, Barbara Leake, and Francis Kent. No one seems to know who played him, but he's the little boy, the ghost. The Haunted Mirror was directed by Robert Hamer, story by John Baines. It stars Ralph Michael, Esme Percy, and Googie Withers. The Golfer's Story, directed by Charles Crichton, based on the story of the inexperienced ghost by H.G. Wells. It stars Peggy Bryan, Basil Radford, Naughton Wayne, Peter Jones, and then The Ventriloquist Dummy, Directed by Albert Calvacanti, story by John Bain, has Alan Jeeves, Magda Kuhn, Miles Mallison, Gary Marsh, Hartley Power, Michael Redgrave, Frederick Falk, and Elizabeth Welch. An architect is asked to a country house for the weekend because the owners want to expand their home. But as he arrives, he feels that everything is familiar. And as the day goes on, he begins to feel that he has experienced everything in a dream and knows what is going to happen next. As the guests all reveal similar experiences, with the supernatural. And you mentioned something before about ventriloquists and the dolls being creepy. And I wondered what your thoughts are about why ventriloquism does bring out the horror in it. It's a little bit like a second voice in your head. Your internal monologue is turned into an external monologue. It's as if it's given free voice. Let's face it, people have some dark thoughts sometimes, and ventriloquist dolls, they get to voice that. But the other thing, of course, is the way they look. We didn't talk about it in our discussion of magic, but fats is made to look like Corky. That's not always the case with these dolls, but they do have very angular faces sometimes. Their movements are a little bit quirky. Because they're caricatures, they often have features that are exaggerated and might be creepy, like the size of the eyes or the eyebrows, and that would creep people out, I think. As you said, I think we associate them with some sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
yeah. personality in Dead of Night may be single-handedly the main reason for this view of ventriloquists. Before this, the best known one was probably Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, but they appeared mainly in the Depression-era comedies. The strange thing about Edgar Bergen is he's a radio star. Ventriloquism on the radio, that's like doing magic on the radio. Right. The 1940s was the transition period in movies in both the U.S. and England. Like, I think the 1970s was the transition period, where in the 1970s, characters were becoming more and more erotic and in existential crisis. In the U.S. and England, there was this growing dissatisfaction that the middle class was feeling that there was something wrong. In England, this eventually became social problem in angry young men films. And in the U.S., this was the driving force of film noir. I think there's been something of a resurgence of ventriloquism lately, mainly due, I think, to both America's Got Talent and Britain's Got Talent, where a number of ventriloquists have become big, especially... I mentioned to you that my father was a professional magician. We worked on several shows with a ventriloquist act that was really unique. A guy had four life-sized ventriloquist figures that he used and he pulled them up out of a stand-up box one at a time and doing his routines and operating them and interacting with it. They were entertaining and fun, but there was a twist to the act. At the end, one of the ventriloquist figures came alive and came out of the box and chased him around on the stage. It was a fantastic moment because if you didn't know it was coming, it was very surprising. That's just like these movies. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What do you think of the pairing of the two films? Obviously, the reason for it is the ventriloquism angle, and I think that that makes sense. The other segments are great. I enjoyed them quite a bit. We'll talk about them a little bit. But it's the ventriloquism sequence that most people will recall when they think about that film. And it's certainly the one that is the creepiest because, once again, the dummy is creepy in that. Hugo is his name. He's not a pleasant dummy. He doesn't have any charm. He tells some funny stuff, but you can tell from the very beginning, there's definitely something wrong here. He's the one in charge. It never feels like prayer is in charge. He always feels like he is, in fact, the secondary character in the act. When did you first see the film? I'm pretty sure I saw it sometime in the late 60s or early 70s on television. It's one of those things where it was probably a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon movie. Local TV stations ran old movies. In those days, RKO Studios had a television station in Los Angeles, KHJ. This is before Turner. They had all of the old RKO movies. I have no idea when I saw the film. Probably like you, it was on TV around that time for the same reason. I'm very sure it was on TV because when I saw it, it did not have the golfing story with it, which was cut from American distribution for time and because the tone was so different from the other stories. I really liked this film, especially the ventriloquist dummy story. I've seen it a few times since then, and I keep growing to like it more and more. One issue with anthology or portmanteau films is that you usually only have one good segment. But this one has one great one, and the others are good to very good. They may not all be great, but none for me are unsatisfying or boring. I also like the bookends in this story as well, because I think that it works well, and it, I'm going to suggest it to Bubba Wheat that he should cover this on his time loop group, because it really feels like a time loop story. It is, and we'll actually find out some interesting things about that and how influential it was in science, actually. Instead of asking for favorite scenes, which I usually do here, I think I'm going to ask for outside of the dummy episode, what's your favorite story or which stories do you especially like? 
the creepiest one is the mirror, but the one that I enjoy the most is the golfing one, which is the one that got cut for U.S. release and probably wasn't seen on television because it's funny. And I like a change of pace in a horror story. I think there have been other anthology films that have come later where there usually is one of the stories that kind of stands out as being amusing. I'm thinking immediately of Cat's Eye from the early 80s, which was an anthology of Stephen King stories. And there's a story in there with James Woods about a quit smoking clinic. It's got some creepy elements to it, but it's largely played for laughs. And there's a moment where the two guys agree to play a golf game for the hand of this woman and she's all for that and I'm just going this is a different world yeah the funniest bit in the story is when the ghost appears and he offers to let his surviving friend that he's haunting off the hook if he gives up the woman and he gives up golf and the guy agrees to give up the woman but he says golf I can't do that what do you what's wrong with you I think mine is the Hearststriker. People think this is an urban legend. It's not. E.F. Benson wrote the short story in 1906, and he adapted it for this movie. And it's been used over and over again. And people think that this is just one of those urban legends when it's not. I also like the mirror one as well. And there's this one moment here when Peter Cortland is standing next to the mirror with his wife, Joan, and the mirror reflects their actual room. And then we see Peter looking in the mirror, and it's the murder room. Joan isn't seen, and he turns to her and talks to her as if she was there. And that got me. I said, oh, she's not there. And I went, well, of course she's not there. They edited it. (laughs) So she wasn't. There are four directors. How do you think they all work together since they all did separate? Well, obviously the tone is all over the place. The sequence that strings everything together, I think, is pretty consistent. But it is the strangest of the stories because it requires everybody to sit down and listen to a psychologist give lectures on all of their stories. And that feels a little bit odd. Like you said, the tone is very different with the golfing story. It's also very light in the way it's shot. It's daylight, cheery, and everything else has got much darker elements to it. I'm not sure that there's a moment that occurs in the ventriloquist dummy segment that takes place in the daytime. I'm not familiar with the director of this particular segment that we're going to be talking about. I looked him up. He's done a lot of things that I have never seen. I couldn't say if this is typical of his style. I've only seen a couple of his things. Calvin Conti was born in Brazil, ended up in Europe making avant-garde films, then worked for various production companies, ending up at Ealing Studios. He's well regarded today. People seem to talk a lot about him, but he's really only remembered for three films. Went the Day Well, Dead of Night, and Nicholas Nickleby. Nicholas Nickleby is wonderful. It should be better now, and it's usually as good as David Lean's Oliver Twist. But outside of that, I can't say I've really seen many of his films as well. I think both Dead of Night and Nicholas Nickleby have a nice atmosphere and look. Basil Dearden was a solid director, but he's most known today for two social justice films. Sapphire, about a black woman passing for white, who was found murdered, and Victim, a film about men being blackmailed for being gay. We talked about Robert Hammer on Pop Art before, when we paired his best-known film, Kind Hearts and Coronets, with Scott Pilgrim versus The World. He's very well regarded, but his talent, many felt, was cut short by his inability to accept his homosexuality and his debilitating alcoholism. And then Charles Crichton is probably the one most remembered today. Yeah. A number of healing comedies and ending his career with a fish called Wanda. The same with the screenplay. There are only two screenwriters credited. That's John Bain. Angus McField, though T.E.B. White, contributed some dialogue. John Bain is not that well known. He did the first version of The Blue Lagoon and the remake of The Hands of Orlack. 
Angus Mathel began Silent Films, did a lot of healing films, as well as Hitchcock's Spellbound for the Wrong Man, and he also did some work on the remake of The Imagination Man. This also was an important film in some ways. Before this, Ealing mainly made films that were dramas and reflected the working class reality of the day, especially his life during the war. But the war was coming to an end. Ealing wanted to break out from that. England banned horror films from being made during the war. But I guess everybody saw the writing on the war, on the wall, where it's about to end. So they made this film. They did a genre film. And then they went on to make what they're best known for, a series of wonderful comedy. So this helped them get away from what would be the early kitchen sink before the kitchen sink movies. And it was also influential as an anthology film. It wasn't the first anthology film. And it wasn't the first horror film anthology, though it may be the first since the silent days. But it did start this craze or portmanteau horror films, most notably with amicus films, with movies like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, and Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror. Yeah, there are a and ton. Of, yeah. I remember as a kid seeing The House That Dripped Blood, being frightened of the vampire in that. I saw it not too long ago, a year or two ago, and I said, I must have been an easily scared child, because that's not that scary. <laughs> <laughs> I think I talked to you about one before, but it actually preceded this by a half dozen years, Tales of Man Manhattan. Right. That's the one where they pass the frock coat yes. from person to person to person. And even before that, there's one of my favorites is The Fi Had a Million, which later became the television show The Millionaire. It's a series of scenes where a wealthy man just gives a million dollars to random people from the telephone book. <laughs> but was also what was different and new was this had an overall storyline surrounding the episodes. Yes. And not just connecting them, they actually were part of the overall plot. And it was a circular plot. For someone who relives the same events over and over again, it's like Groundhog Day, but in which we only focus on one day. The idea that he's going through this moment of deja vu with everything that's happening, unlike Groundhog Day, where he knows something is going on. In this particular situation, he doesn't know that it's going on, and it just becomes more familiar as he goes along until we get to the final sequence when, you know, he commits murder. Well, he doesn't really because it's all a dream. Or is and it? And that's it. <laughs> you know, if you start thinking about this too much, it gets really weird because the movie is a dream that then goes into several different dreams in which there's sometimes a further dream within a dream, like the hearse driver and the ventriloquist scene. And then all the stories come together in that final scene and he wakes up. And when the architect wakes up, his wife is there. So his wife is part of the dream because he doesn't wake up from a dream. He's still dreaming. <laughs> But this actually had a big influence on astronomy and physics because the circular plot of Dead of Night inspired astronomer Fred Hoyle's steady state model of the universe, which he developed in 1948. Mario Livio in Brilliant Blunder cites the effect a viewing of Dead of Night had on astrophysicists Fred Hoyle, Herman Bondi, and Thomas Gold. Quote, Gold asked suddenly, what if the universe is like that? Meaning that the universe could be eternally circling on itself without beginning or end. And unable to dismiss this conjecture, they started to think seriously of an unchanging universe, a steady state universe, end quote. And Hoyle rejected the Big Bang Theory. But I think ironically, he was the one who coined the phrase. And today, most scientists have rejected the steady state model and gone behind some version of the Big Bang. 
though the way the movie is written, the architect seems to be remembering more and more. So eventually, theoretically, he should be able to remember enough to bring an end to it and change the course of events. So what would happen then? So now we get to the big one, the ventriloquist dummy scene. Why do you think that's the most successful? Obviously, it's memorable because we've got the ventriloquist element to it. As we've already said, the dummies are kind of creepy. It's an image that I think people will remember easier. The only other image in the movie that I think is quite as memorable is that hearse outside of the race driver's window. But even that seems, by comparison, not distinctive enough to hold you. But the image of Hugo in the light with the shadow surrounding him or Ferrer interacting with him in a strange way and just that face. There is one sequence where, unlike magic, it is strongly suggested that Hugo does come to life. Actually have a little person or a child stand up and walk over to Ferrer in the scene. That's pretty disturbing, too. Well, he doesn't walk over to Ferrer. That's in the final scene where he walks over to the architect. Yes, there is the scene where Ferrer is looking for Hugo. And he finds it in this other ventriloquist room. And how did he get there? Exactly. Well, the psychologist can explain it away, but the rest of us are going, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I mean, but it does add to the creepiness. And I think a lot of the credit has to go to Michael Redgrave, as well as the screenplay. It doesn't really last very long. It's only one segment of the movie as a whole. But for me, it feels the most full and most complete. And even though it doesn't last as long, I find it more satisfying dramatically than magic. I think that might be true. Yeah. To be honest, it doesn't really feature a murder. The other ventriloquist doesn't die. He's just attacked. He's shot. Later on, he comes back in as a form of shock treatment for Ferrer. Despite the fact that it's a horror film, it doesn't feature an actual murder or the kinds of things that most people associate with horror movies. You were also speaking about the Hearth, the scene being memorable. And I really believe that Igmar Bergman was influenced by that in his making of Wild Strawberries. It was very well received at the time. Film critic Leonard Maltin awarded the film four out of possible four stars. Then there's the acting. Is there anyone outside of Michael Redgrave who you would like to point out? Well, I don't know that anybody stood out. They were all solid. They're very much in that style of acting that was typical before the 50s, where it's a little bit mannered. It's not as exaggerated as the silent films, but I kind of like Googie Withers. I thought she was pretty effective as the wife who is about to be murdered by her husband, who is convinced that he is living in this alternate universe. You're right. These actors in the film are not, for the most part, really known as much today in the U.S., but at the time in Britain, they would be as recognizable as character actors that appeared over and over again in American films. And I always remember Miles Mallison, who is the hearse driver, the bus conductor, and the jailer. And I think I've seen him in a dozen things. For me, Michael Redgrave is the star here. Yeah. He's one of England's finest actors. He was the son of actors. He and his wife, Rachel Kimson, started an acting dynasty. I mean, he's the father of Lynn, Vanessa, and Corin Redgrave. He's the grandfather of Abe and Greg, grandfather too, all of whom were actors. So he's outdone the Fondas and the Houstons, more power to them. Though married, he was bisexual. He told Rachel about it when he proposed, and she said that she was fine with it since she loved him. There is a story Noel Coward tells about the night before Redgrave was to ship out during the war. Redgrave had a choice of staying with his wife or staying with Coward, and Coward said something to the effect, what could I do? He was such a pretty young man. Redgrave is best known for playing repressed and neurotic roles, and he's great. He's probably best known, though, today for playing the lead in Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. I think that's the one film that I've seen him in. 
I'm going to point out three other actors. In the golfing story, Parrot and Potter are portrayed by Basil Radford and Naughton Wayne. The characters are obviously based on the characters Charters and Caldecott from Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. And in fact, those two characters and the actress who portrayed them were so well-liked by the public. They appeared in other films that were not sequels to the Hitchcock film, but they made other films together playing those two characters. Graham Greene wanted them to be in The Third Man, but the role was combined into a single character played by Wilford Hyde White. But they've now come to be considered the quintessential British middle-class character of everything is fine as long as we can get the scores for the cricket match. (laughs) And yes, they would never give up golf for a woman. But it's also Elizabeth Welch as Beulah, the black owner of the nightclub in Dead of Night. And Elizabeth Welch was a hugely successful cabaret singer for 70 years, mainly in France and England. Her signature song was Stormy Weather, and she sang as time goes by years before it was heard in Casablanca. According to Stephen Bourne's 2005 book, Elizabeth Welch, Soft Light for Sweet Music, the depiction here was, quote, a breakthrough in the portrayal of black women in film. For the first time in a film, a black woman is portrayed as independent, successful, and resourceful. Welch played an important part in the development of the plot and was featured in the film's billing with such eminent players as Michael Redgrave, Gilly Withers, Mervyn Johns, and Frederick Falk. This is something you would never see in an American film at the time because it would not play in the South. In musicals at the time, they would sometimes have uh, Lena Horne and people like that would be in the film, but they would be in it in such ways that they could edit out those sections or you would not see them sing. You would just hear them sing and the film would show something else going on. At the same time, they do name her Beulah, which is a rather stereotypical name for a black woman. And the character that talks to her makes a racial joke when she looks at her jewelry and says, it's like seeing the lights of Broadway at night. However, I swear she gave him a look when he made that joke. (laughs) She does kind of smile at it. I didn't get the impression that she didn't appreciate it. I think she recognized what he was pointing out. And that's as close as they come to acknowledging that she is a black woman in what is largely a white movie. I thought the way he interacted with her from the very beginning seem to ignore the race consciousness that we see so often in these kinds of films. You're absolutely right. They talk like they're equals. Yes. Cinematography is by Douglas Slocum. He did the Italian job in 1969 and Michael Dealey, the producer, hired him because he tended to do very moody work and he was very efficient. He did a ton of Ealing movies that may be best known today for doing the first three Indiana Jones films and the high contrast black and white cinematography was a standard at the time, hugely influenced by the German Expressionism in the 1920s and early 30s. And the music was by George Ulrich. He's known for many Ealing films and movies like Beauty and the Beast and Orpheus. He turned the music here into a suite, and you can hear it on YouTube. With that, here's some more information about the film. According to Kinematograph Weekly, the film performed well at the British box office in 1945. It was the ninth most successful British film that year. At the 1946 Ocarno International Film Festival, Festival, it won Most Interesting Screenplay. I just thought that was kind of fun. Yeah. Ooh, we won Most Interesting. Uh, <laughs> U.S. distributors thought that the original print of the movie was too long. Therefore, the golfing tale and the Christmas ghost tale were cut, which confused American audiences who could not understand what Michael Allen from the Christmas Ghost Tale was doing in the nightmare montage at the end. When Sally is told of Francis Kitt being murdered by his sister, this is based on a trivia. Francis, aged nearly four years old, was murdered at Road Hill House in 1860. His half-sister Constance, 16 at the time, was arrested and put on trial in 1865. After serving 20 years in jail, she was released and immigrated to Australia, where she died at the age of 100, only one year before the release of this movie. 
Googie Weathers, when interviewed on an Australian television midday show in the 1980s, revealed that only one take was possible of the mirror smashing scene as Ealing Studios' budget didn't extend to more than one mirror. So she gave it her best shot. So with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Well, I did mention Tales of Manhattan. That would probably be my go-to. There's not really a horror story in that one, but it is a good example of the kinds of anthology films. And it is held together by a continuous theme. And I really liked it. It's got a lot of stars in it. The best one is with Charles Lawton. Yes, yes. Although I like the Edward G. Robinson story quite well. Maybe that's the one I'm most sentimental about. And then there are a ton of horror films that do the anthology thing. I mentioned Cat's Eye before. If you want to laugh, there's nothing unifying at all except that it's the history of the world. The History of the World Part 1 is another anthology film that has its good moments and its not-so-good moments. (laughs) And the most recent anthology film that I think people will have, have access to that's worth seeing is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And it does have a very creepy story in it. The sequence with Liam Neeson, to me, is the most disturbing. I've gone a little overboard. I first put down 1954's Knock on Wood, the Daddy Cave vehicle where he and his ventriloquist dummy get involved in an espionage comedy about a spy ring hiding secrets in the dummy's head. You mentioned this in Season 3, Episode 33 of the original Twilight Zone. We have the dummy in which Cliff Robertson plays a ventriloquist who comes to believe his dummy is real and evil. And then anything with Edgar Bergen, a vaudevillian and movie actor, whose dummy Charlie McCarthy was called by W.C. Field the Woodpecker's Pinup Boy. <laughs> when it comes to anthology horror films, it's difficult for me to name one in which all or even most of the entries are worth watching. For most of them, I only like one of them. So I'm going to actually name a handful of episodes from Portman Poe films. If you could actually get all of these together in one, I think that would be great. The episode Vampire from Doc Terror's House of Horrors with Donald Sutherland and Max Adrian. Toby Dammit from Spirits of the Dead with Terrence Stamp. That's the segment we covered on a previous pop art episode with Lost in Translation. Blind Alleys from 1972's Tales from the Crypt with Patrick McGee. We're Creeping Up on You from Creep Show with E.G. Marshall. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet from Twilight Zone the Movie with John Lithgow. And, as you mentioned, Quitters, Inc. from Cat's Eye with James Wood. Somebody can edit this together and post it on YouTube for us. So if you're a listener and you have those skills, let us know when you do that. So what's next? What should we be expecting from you? The Lambcast has a bunch of movies that are coming up. It's... Oscar bait season, so we've got a lot of big films coming at the end of the year. We're looking forward to The Fableman, Empire of Light. The immediate film that everybody is anticipating being one of the big films of the year, I don't know it'll be Academy Award winner, although I've heard very promising things so far is Wakanda Forever, which I believe I've added you to the show. So, uh... Well, as for me, I'll list my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I have also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. And I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was the Halloween episode with English teacher by day, horror aficionado by night, Laura Leahy, where we discussed the exorcism of Emily Rose 
and Requiem. Two films about exorcisms and both based on the same true life incident. The next episode will be with the producer Colin Bain, where we will discuss The Wild Bunch and Once Upon a Time in the West, two revisionist westerns. So with that, Richard, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Thank you, Howard. It's always a pleasure. I hope to be able to do it again someday.